Ezekiel chapter 33, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read till verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring us the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn away from his way, the wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. And that we would not just listen, but that we would also obey your commands. That our faith would not just be empty faith, and our profession would not be an empty profession of words, but that we would turn our minds, our hearts, and even in our actions, wholly to our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would motivate us to actions, actions that are reflective of the fact that we have been saved and redeemed by a holy God to work. And that work includes 
seeking and saving the lost, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation that was purchased by Jesus that is available to those who turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in the one true living God. We love you and we praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been doing an evangelism series at Providence on the evening services. And Kevin has been going through the two ways to live. Uh, the two ways to live, it's a Bible tract that gives you six points that if you go through those six points, you'll present the gospel accurately. And that's an important thing. That's actually of primary importance is that we know as Christians what the gospel is and how to communicate it accurately to other people. And that's the first gauge in the very first sermon on this, on evangelism, the very first gauge of successful evangelism, after he explained what evangelism was not, he said he gave us three questions that we can kind of use to see, are we successful in our evangelism, in our sharing the gospel with other people? And the first one was, that's presented accurately which is why he's been going through this. And he'll continue to go through this starting next week, I presume. But he also gave two other gauges of success for successful evangelism. The second one was, are we presenting the message to the lost? In other words, yes, it's important that we know how to do it accurately, but we don't need to actually do it. We need to actually deliver God's good news to those people who need it. And lastly, the last, uh, the last gauge of how successful our evangelism is, is whether we're presenting the message with reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. My contribution tonight is to look at the second point. Yes, we need to present it accurately. And I'm going to be assuming the entire time that we are relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to convert the sinners that we speak to. The fact that we cannot be accurate enough, we cannot be engaging enough, that we cannot be fill-in-the-blank enough to convince a sinner who the Holy Spirit has not worked on. And that's okay. But we need to actually present the message to the lost. It's kind of important. And that's what I want to motivate us to do. And I think that's exactly what Ezekiel, how God is motivating Ezekiel in this book. And if you read through Ezekiel, where we pick up in Ezekiel at chapter 33 is actually a turning point. It's the, it's the center turning point to the whole book. The first 12 chapters, kind of reminiscent to what we just read, was about how God was sending his sword against the Israelites. And then the next, what was it, chapter 13 to 31, God was saying how he's going to send his sword against the nations. And this is the turn in the book, the turn to where we get to Ezekiel's message of hope. And I want to show you how this is a message of hope, how that, it's that turn. And we have that turn by him coming back to the illustration he gave at the beginning of this book in chapter 3, where God calls Ezekiel to be his watchman. At the age of 30, he was supposed to become a priest, and instead he became a watchman, a prophet. 
So we're going to see this illustration come back, and that's what has come back into this text. He comes back to the illustration of a watchman. And we're going to see how this illustration leads to a very profound explanation that kind of is the, the starting point to the book's message of hope for the rest of the book. We're not going to read the whole book, though, tonight. Just this chapter. And it starts off with an illustration. Uh, if you look at chapter, and at verse 2, your, my ESV says, If I bring, a land, uh, I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and make them his watchman. What we're getting here is the beginning of a, just a general picture. This is much like the, pic, the parables of Jesus. He's taking an image, something that they would be familiar with, and making an application out of it. And the application, uh, the illustration here is that these people who are living in a foreign land, if you knew that you were in a dangerous area, a.k.a. for them, outside of Israel, in captivity, what would you do if you knew you were in a dangerous land? Well, you might, if you're living in the ancient world, you would probably pick out someone to be a watchman, someone who would patrol the walls of the city, looking out for danger. Sounds like a pretty wise thing to do. It's just, this is just a normal, general illustration that he's uh, lifting from their normal life, well, their new normal life. And there's something that's really foundational to understanding this illustration of the duty of a watchman, and it's a foundational assumption. The assumption that they are in danger, that there is a clear and present danger that they need to be watching out for. The watchman is given the responsibility as a watchman to patrol the walls, maybe sitting, looking out, passing, uh, and as he's passing, he's constantly looking on the horizon, looking for danger. And notice the other assumption of this text Verse 2 says, if I bring the sword. If you had read Ezekiel up until this point, you'd realize that the sword or judgment coming upon a people is always God's hand. It's always God's work. That's why we can say as Christians that the fact of this COVID crisis and people's responses to it and all that has happened is God's hand. It's all happening as God's work in the world, God doesn't, he is not the author of evil, but evil does fit into his plan to accomplish his purposes. So there's danger. God is the one who is sovereign over it all, using it for his means. But that's just the background of a watchman, the picture, of a walk, of the picture that we have of the watchman. The real point of this is where does responsibility fall? Responsibility is a key theme that comes up over and over again, and you see it in the word blood. Blood happens in 4, verse 4, 5, 6, 8. And if you know Hebrew, which that's okay if you don't, if you see even in your English Bibles a word that's constantly repeated, that's probably going to have something to do with the main point. That's trying to be conveyed. 
And it said, let's look at a couple of these. Verse 4, his blood shall be upon his own head. Verse 5, his blood shall be upon himself. Verse 6, but his blood I will require at the hand of the watchman. What's happening here? Blood is is connected to responsibility. It's kind of like we actually have a, a similar analogy in our day and age when we say, that you were caught red-handed. Kind of a bloody image if you think about it. But what does that mean? That means if your child has stolen cookies out of the cookie jar, to borrow from Kevin's analogies, if they have crumbs on their face, what is that? That's evidence that they have committed a crime. You're also caught red-handed if you have your hand in the middle of a jar. Right? And your parents catch you. And the point is, is that blood is connected with responsibility. If blood is on their own head, that means they're responsible. If blood is on someone else, they're the ones with the responsibility. So basically, we can, we can have a little puzzle here. We can follow the trail. We need to see where the blood is and why to get this picture. So let's look at verse 4 and 5. If anyone hears the sound of a trumpet and does not take warning and the sword comes his way, his blood shall be upon his own head. Verse 5, he heard, this is reiterating the same point, he heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. What's the responsibility here being conveyed? Well, we have two characters. We have the people and the watchman. The watchman's job given to him is to watch out for danger. The people's job, the thing they hired him to do, is that when the watchman blows the trumpet, blows this like a big ram's horn for the whole city to hear danger is approaching, Their job is to listen to it and to respond. This is kind of obvious. The listener's job is to listen. There are warnings being sent, and if you don't listen to it, the responsibility's on you. Your blood's on your own head. But, verse 6, if the watchman sees the sword coming, he's looking at the distance, he sees an army approaching the city and he does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The watchman's job is to warn. If he sees danger... He's to tell the people that the danger is coming. And if he doesn't do that, he hasn't done his job. And even though he's not the person who uses the sword to kill the people, their blood is on his hands. Notice here that the person taken away, that the person, the fact that God has sent judgment upon the city and the sword is coming, that God is not being unjust. 
even if the watchman doesn't warn, even if they are taken by surprise and fall, the reason why they die is because of God's judgment. God is not unjust in any scenario in this picture. God is just to send an uh, army to come and inflict judgment upon a people. But that does not negate the watchman's job. The watchman still sinned. He was negligent in his responsibility. And that's why a reason, one of the reasons, right, why they died. It's a pretty simple illustration, right? I mean, it's not too hard to get, not in, outside of any of our, uh, beyond our grasp. But there's an interest, basically, there's an interesting connection that I think is really helpful for us in evangelism and how we can apply it to ourselves today. First, if the, basic, the basic logic of this is that if there's danger and you know about it and you don't say anything, yeah, you might not be the reason why they're dying. But you are sinning. You are doing something wrong. So we, have, can, we can kind of ask ourselves a question. Are the people around us still in danger? They were literally in danger of the sword and had watchmen out. But as we'll read in the next portion, their problem and Ezekiel's job was not to look out for an army coming. He was to look out and he knew, had infallible knowledge that God's wrath was upon them for their sins and that they should turn. And is that true today? Is it true that people are in abiding danger, constant danger looming over our head? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, is commending the Thessalonians for becoming Christians, their faith turning from idols to the living God. And he says that Jesus... Uh, and to wait for his son from heaven, talking about them, who God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a clear and pressing danger of God's wrath that still waits all sinners. We're actually still awaiting the full scope of judgment that was talked about in Ezekiel, where God's wrath was going to crush Every sinner and every sin was going to be atoned for one way or another. Why is that? Well, Romans chapter 3, verses uh, 10 and 11, where Paul said, We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's why judgment's coming. Because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So people are in danger. And if we have a knowledge that they're in danger, well, we just need one more piece of the puzzle for it to apply to us? Do we have a responsibility to our neighbors to warn them about God's wrath? 
Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a couple of things here that will be important just for you to see. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's see who turns there first. Starting at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, here's the clarification point, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a verse that's like a very good encapsulation of the gospel, what the good news is. But looking behind there, we see both things there. We see people's responsibility to warn others and the, the same foundation that people are in danger in this, the fact that what Christ was doing, what God was doing with Jesus, was using him to reconcile sinners back to himself. Because the fact of sin, and us all being sinners, and us all falling short of God's glory, means that we have been alienated from God. That we're not all on God's good side. That we rightly deserve his wrath, his punishment, his judgment. But also notice the responsibility here. It's by virtue of being a new creature. It's by virtue of being regenerated, given a new heart and soul, one that loves God, one that loves his law and wants to seek after him. It's by virtue of that that we are all called, as the church, ambassadors. Yes, this applies to preachers in preaching the word to be ambassadors for Christ, giving the message of the apostles. But it's actually by virtue of being new creatures that we're given this role in the world of being Christ's ambassador. You know this because you've been baptized. You've been given a new name. You are owned by him. And that is our mark in the world that we go out we're owned by Christ, and we go out, and we have the responsibility as his ambassadors here to participate in God's work of reconciling the lost to himself. Let's go back to Ezekiel in chapter 33. He also turns to make even more specific, more uh, specific, the watchman's duty in verses 8 and 9, when this is not a message addressed for the people, but this is a message addressed for the watchman, Ezekiel himself, the person who's to warn. 
Notice what the watchman is to say and what he's to do. If I say to the wicked, oh, verse 7. If so you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Listen closely. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. What's the watchman to say? What's the warning? It's God's word on it. Just like Ezekiel and just like us, we're not looking out and seeing currently judgment happening on sin. We're looking over the horizon, beyond the physical horizon, to the fact that God has said one day he will judge all sinners. That death is a taste of that, and there is a judgment to come. And we are to proclaim not our own speculations, not what we think might happen when you die, We're to proclaim to people as God's watchmen what God has said, God's infallible word. And that's what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 10. Oh, chapter 1, verse 10. That God's wrath is coming. This isn't our educated guess at what we think is going to happen to people when they die. We have a knowledge. And when you compound that knowledge with our responsibility, there's only one option for us and what we're to do next. We're to warn others. I think the problem here, and there's lots of different problems here about why this combination doesn't cause us to go out and warn others. Part of the reason, though, I think is that like the rest of the world, we become convinced that God's standard is not the Ten Commandments, but that God's standard is niceness. We live in the world, we have jobs, we have friends, and they're nice. And they're friendly to us, we like them. Sure, they have some, you know, small things in our eyes, problems, but you know what, they're generally nice people. And what we've subtly done in that instance is we've substituted our standard of what goodness looks like with God's standard. We become convinced of a lie. And guess what? The watchman's not supposed to deliver their educated guess on what they think will happen to someone who's nice. The watchman's supposed to give God's word that says all sinners have fallen short of God's glory and that they too, no matter how nice they are, are under God's judgment. We could also uh, look at the fact that we might become convinced that, you know what, life is going well. I'm comfortable, sure, people are in danger, but it seems like it's very far off. Death is a long ways away from me. And you know what? I would rather make the trade. I'll trade being faithful to God and honoring Him, and I'll make that trade so that I can have comfort in life, not have to deal with conflict, not have to get into... Uh, other people's lives, condemning other people, saying that they're sinners. That makes me uncomfortable. Don't want to do it. So I'll make the substitute. I'll substitute following my will and not God's. And that's a pretty sad trade-off. If we're owned by Christ, as Kevin said this morning, that we are not our own, that we're to subject even our thoughts to our Lord and Savior, that we're not free to think however we want to if we're purchased by Christ. 
that we are called to conform even our minds to God's word. You know, this, I don't know about you, but this is pretty convicting. And if you are feeling convicted, you know what? First, that's right that you're feeling convicted and guilty. Because as God says, when we don't warn people who need, who are in danger, the blood, the red hand, is on the warner. That's a, that's a sobering thought. And that's why what God says next is so important. Because the good news that we hold out to other people is the same good news that we need to hold on to even when we sin in this area. And that good news is the profound explanation. Why is it good news to share bad news? Why is it a good thing to tell people that they are in danger? That's bad news. That's not good news. So what's the good news? Verse 11. What he, God says is, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, why will you die, O house of Israel? What's being held out here? The profound explanation, the thing that's supposed to motivate the sinner who's being warned to actually respond is the fact of God's character. That God is merciful. That God is a forgiving God. That God, to those who are, verse 10, those who are See their transgressions that say about their sins, our sins are upon us and we rot away. Have you ever felt that about your sin? That you've kept it in and haven't repented of your sin and it's rotten away, it's eaten your bones, like David says, that his bones turn to dust. And that person who's feeling conviction of his sin, who sees that danger is approaching. What, you know, what's the good news for the person who sees danger is approaching? What's the good news there? It's the fact that if they turn from their sins and turn to God, they know they will be saved because God doesn't want to strike them dead. God doesn't have, get pleasure out of convicting and killing sinners, though he is just and he will do it. Verse 11 says another phrase over and over again. It talks about turning. Verse 11, turn back from your evil way of life when the watchman, and if you think about this connected to what we just read about the watchman, when the watchman blows his ram's horn, the people of the city would need to stop, stop what they're doing, and either turn to face the attackers or turn and run away from the invaders. But either way, turning is involved. And we sinners need to turn from our old ways of life and need to turn to the God who is merciful and is faithful to save. I, you know, I was sick two weeks ago. That's why I didn't preach. But by God's providence, I got to come up here after Kevin's great sermon on faith. 
and how if we confess our sins and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that we will be saved. Is this focus on telling people to turn from evil somehow in conflict with that message of faith alone being how we receive God's grace? Well, if it is in conflict, we have a problem. Acts chapter 2, this is uh, the end of Peter's sermon. Peter has just preached to them about how Jesus is the Messiah and how they just crucified and murdered him. Talk about sins that they need to turn from. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Doesn't this sound like what we just read? People rotting under the pressure of their sins and saying, how shall I live? What can I do to live? How, what can I do to be saved? And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, how? Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. The people were just like the people here. The offer of salvation offered to those who have a sense of their sin, who have conviction of their sin, the, the weight of it, agreeing with God, confessing that God is right. They are sinners, and they deserve the punishment that's coming. And to them, Peter does the same thing. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ, and trust in Him. Leave this, you know, be saved out of this evil generation. You know, Ezekiel actually says, the same message as in verse 33 in chapter 18. It's not the first time that we've heard that Ezekiel is the watchman, and it's also not the first time that we hear that God does not wish, does not want to punish the wicked, that he doesn't get pleasure out of it. That's what I mean by that. Ezekiel 18, starting at verse 30. Therefore, I'll judge you, O house of Israel, every one of you, according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. See, the same thing that is said here about turning, repentance, being a way of salvation, is the same, uh, is based on something that's not said in that text, but is said elsewhere. Repentance is not a work that saves you. That's not the assumption of the text. The, the assumption of the text is that God is the one who calls, like Peter said, that God calls sinners to himself. 
And when God calls sinners to themselves, he gives them a new heart and a new spirit. And what does that new spirit and new heart do? It believes God's word. That person believes God's word and finds salvation and receives salvation by faith alone. And what else does that person do that has a new heart and a new soul? That person turns from their sins because they have a new heart. One that has God's law written on it, Jeremiah 31. One that hates sin and loves God. This is not a message of works. When people are convicted of their sin, it's right and necessary to tell them to turn from their sins. But it's not just sins that they're supposed to turn from. They're all supposed to turn to the living God who doesn't want to punish them. So at this point, I do think that we need to note the progression of redemption history that we live in here. This is from a book by John Piper, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a good book on missions. And Piper said something I think that's really helpful. Before Christ, faith was focused on the mercy of God to forgive sins and to care for his people. As Revelation progressed, Faith could move more easily from the animal sacrifices to the promised sin bearer of Isaiah 53. But when when Christ came, all faith narrowed in it to focus on him, Christ, alone as the one who purchased and guaranteed all the hopes of the people of God. From the time of Christ onward, God's will is to honor Christ by making him the sole focus of saving faith. Therefore, people must call on him, believe in him, and hear him, and be sent as messengers with the word of Christ. God's mercy, what we get to when we get to the New Testament, when we read of the crucifixion and resurrection, we see God's justice and mercy meet. We get to see God's righteousness in overlooking and forgiving sinners. We get to see God's righteousness in such an action because it's on the cross where God's judgment upon sin is laid for God's people. It's on the cross where we see God's justice on display and the fact that he actually does care about sins. He hates sin so much that that it took God becoming a man and dying on the cross to deal with the issue. And God's mercy is seen in that God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever would believe in him might receive eternal life. We had a duty of a watchman to warn and the listener should listen. And here the profound explanation we see the very reason why sinners should be urged to turn to him. It's God's mercy. Romans 2, 4 says that it's actually God's kindness that should lead us to repentance. And that watchman that's pictured, us, what we should do, we should go out motivated. We should go out motivated to go warn a sick and dying world also because we know that God is merciful, that God wants to save sinners And he will save everyone he intends to save. That's a pretty profound reason. Pretty profound explanation 
of this simple illustration. I want you to skip down to the end of the chapter to see something else, though. Just a word of warning. This is uh, verse 30 of chapter 33. As for you, son of man, your people walk together about you in the walls and at the doors of the houses and say to one another, each to his brother, come, let's hear the word that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are like, uh, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they'll hear what you say, but they will not do it. You know, this is the scary thing about hearing God's word, to being, having to play the role of the listener, which everyone in this room, including me, has to play. The scary thing is that many will listen and not turn. And if we are not preaching the gospel regularly, we have a sin that we're to turn from. We have something to repent of. And the scary thing is that we could hear God's word and not turn from it. And we all just, I think sometimes maybe one last reason why we might not go and share the gospel with other people is because we think they won't listen. We think they won't listen to me. They've heard the gospel a thousand times. They, they live in the South. You can't throw a rock without hitting someone who actually knows, you know, that Jesus is God, that, he sent, that God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. Everyone knows that message. I'm going to be, my words are going to fall on death ears. You know, thankfully, Paul did not think that. Paul did not think that. Acts 28, the way the book of Acts ends, this is what happens. Verse 17, if you want to actually, we're going to end here, so if you want to turn there, Acts 28, that might be a good thing. Acts 28, Verse 17, I'm going to start there. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when he had gathered, he said, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews... Objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, I have asked, uh, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from you, uh, from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for we regard this sect we know that everywhere is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. 
but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. And after Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Paul went to the Jews. He preached the gospel to them, and he said, you know what, I'm, I'm experiencing what he describes in Romans chapter 9. They don't seem to listen. Verse 28, though. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You know what world history has been since that time? Gentiles listening. The world, all the nations of the world, coming and bowing before Christ. And that's just as true in our nation as anywhere else. The results depend upon God. It's not our job for people to listen to us. It's not our job to, you know, we should try to be convincing like Paul, but it's not our, we don't have the ability in and of ourselves to convince sinners. That's God's job. Our job, though, is to preach. Our job, though, is to be God's witnesses of God's work, of God's salvation that is found in the mercy of God as demonstrated on the cross. And we should go out into the world with a little bit more confidence, knowing that those who God has, is going to draw to himself, he's going to work. And he's going to work through the words of the gospel to save those people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, merciful one, we, take, we know that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that's why you sent the Son to save us. And the Holy Spirit is sent into the lives of sinners to convict them of sin, to convict them of righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to give the good news of Jesus Christ to people. That the fact that you are merciful, that explanation that you are merciful to sinners would motivate us to go out and share your good news. Yes, we have the duty as watchmen, as those who have been saved by you. We have the responsibility to do it. But let's do our job with love. A love for your law, a love for the lost, and a love for your glory. A love to see every nation, every elect individual, to see them come to saving faith. Lord, let us not love our comforts more than your glory. Not, let's not love our fear of man and what they might do to us more than honoring you. Let's be convicted of our sin and turn to you. And just like everyone else, rest on your mercy, and your mercy alone, in Christ alone, to save us. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name.
We pray. Amen.